0: what goes into their calculus is really well thought out. It wasn't probably just cost driven on, oh yeah, we can get the land cheaper and the rent is cheaper. There are other things that are going into that decision and that's very different than the decision-making matrix of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s.
1: People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach, whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources. Being among the industry leaders and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. Today's conversation is with Jim Clolo the chief investment officer at CenterPoint, one of the nation's largest and most influential industrial commercial real estate investors and developers. Jim's road to CenterPoint was an improbable one. He started in the commercial real estate industry after graduating from the University of Illinois and taking a research job with CBRE. He wanted to become an office broker, but opportunities there was scant. So he went to the industrial side of the business and had to learn on his own the ins and outs of that industry. And it was not a very exciting part of the industry at that time either. Today, Jim and CenterPoint are helping define the industrial real estate market throughout the country, and Jim sees the industry's constant change as one of its most appealing features. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Jim, uh, good afternoon. How are you? Good. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Where does this podcast find you today? Where are you?
0: Chicago, Illinois.
1: Excellent. Are you guys uh, back in the office, uh, sort of back to normal or still kind of crawling back as uh, the uh, CDC allows you.
0: Yeah, back, yeah, they're back in the office and, uh, you know, working as, as hard as we possibly can.
1: Okay, <laughs> Very, like like every industrious, you know, Midwestern firm, right? <laughs> that's,
0: that's exactly yeah, right. Excellent. No for me.
1: Good, good. Um, well, Jim, by way of uh, introduction, tell us a little bit about, you know, your background within a company, how you got to CenterPoint and sort of, you know, yeah. how your winding road of your career kind of got you to where you are today.
0: Yeah, I came out of the University of Illinois in 1985. You know, I'm from Chicago originally and knew that the commercial real estate industry was growing rapidly. And so had lots of people suggesting I take this route uh, and talk to a whole bunch of different brokerage firms and was uh, hired by CB in December of 85. Okay. So I was with CBRE, you know, the, the big national or really international brokerage firm. Uh, and they were a dominant force at the time. They were owned by Colwell Banker, believe it or not, which was owned by Sears. So they were part of the Sears financial network. You know, people kind of tend to forget that. Yeah, them.
1: right. Yeah. And so
0: you you'd walk into a mall, and you'd see Dean Witter, Colwell Banker, Allstate. And I think they had somebody else too, uh, and that was their financial network. It was really very very smart. Yeah. And the reason I bring it up is because it's something that they gave up on they probably shouldn't have you know the department store business obviously I mean, we we know what happened with with them sure but the financial network investment they'd made this was basically you know late, eight, late late 70s late 80s was really something that was driving their earnings and it's a story that people kind of tend to forget about but anyway i started at cb in december of 85 as a market research analyst meaning that i was the guy that basically went out looked at buildings figured out the square footage you know who was in there who the decision maker was whether it was office, retail, or industrial. CB had primarily three property types that they focused on. They had multifamily, but it wasn't as big then. And so they had me support the retail, office, and industrial functions for market research, which was really a good background because it helped me understand the market, helped me understand what brokers needed, what sellers were doing. So essentially, you're, you're, you're an eyewitness to the market every day. As someone who's coming out of college, and and CB's got a, a wonderful culture in terms of training people. Yeah. So I I learned a lot as you know I was 22 when I my, my first day, uh, and and it was really a great industry to get into. Yeah. And I didn't really understand all the macro when. And you
1: weren't do, doing just industrial that time. Sounds like you were kind of doing all right. property types. Right? All three.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So I, I had the exposure to see office. Yeah. And quite frankly, I was based in Schaumburg, Illinois. Okay. Which at the time had as much office space. If you, if you added up every office, basically took all the buildings and added up the square footage, the, the office base of Schaumburg had the same size as like Cincinnati.
1: Oh wow! So okay. it was a massive office yeah. market yeah, for yeah. that time,
0: and was basically congregated around Woodfield Mall, which is about two and a half million square foot, a you know, mega mall yeah. here in Chicago. Yeah. And you know, back then, that's when you know, office buildings were congregated around. Big malls, and and there was a retail mecca, well, you know, surrounding that big mall. Yep. So the retail and office business was particularly strong, and then the industrial market that I focused on was Elk Grove Village, Illinois, which is adjacent to O'Hare Airport, yep. and and it's not uh, an unusual transformation. But way back then, the big industrial markets, the most active industrial markets, were always near the airports.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: You know they weren't necessarily near ports; they were near the airports. So uh, I was working in Elk Grove, you know, uh, basically canvassing buildings and trying to figure out what the square footage is and uh, you know, who was in the building, et cetera, et cetera. Doing that in office buildings in Schomburg and doing that in retail buildings in Schomburg, primarily. Yeah. And getting to know the brokers and getting to know the lay of the land, the, the nomenclature of the businesses. You know, it's got a lot of different terms sure. that are confusing. Not that, that, that they're difficult because they're not. Right. But it's more just understanding the, what, what what it all means. And came out of that program in 1986, at basically the end of 86, running for an industrial real estate broker. And it wasn't by choice, to be frank with you. I wanted to be an office broker or a retail broker. <laughs> okay. uh, that's where the, the money was really being made right, at right. the time. But we just had too many brokers. And so they said, you know, Jim, if you want to work at CB, this is the path you got to choose. you got to be an industrial broker. And I said, okay, I guess
1: I'll,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I need to do. Because I, really, I like the, the, the team. I like the culture, the values. They had a lot of good processes and systems that I learned. And it was a very collaborative environment, believe it or not. Their corporate culture at the time was incredibly team-oriented. They liked to hire athletes who were really team-oriented, and if there were people that were individualistic, you know, who were at sharp elbows, they they tended to get rid of them. So it was a pretty nurturing for someone like me. Like you, you would expect to be, you know, it would be like a, a boiler room type yeah, situation. Yeah. It was it wasn't at all. Yeah. It was, but quite frankly, the, the the very very opposite of that. Yeah. And so I joined uh, one of the senior brokers in industrial, January of '87, essentially.
1: Yeah.
0: Got into leasing and selling industrial real estate, uh, you know, that 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 year and you know, doing it the old fashioned way, sure. which at the time. Meant going out and knocking on doors, not via phone or Zoom or text or any artificial means. It was going out and literally knocking on door. You know, you would walk building to building, knocking on door, and say, "Hey, listen, I'm Jim Clullo, is the owner here?" Nine times out of ten, or maybe even more, it was, "Can you get the hell out of here?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you learn rejection very right, quickly. Right. But you also learn that you know, people generally, by and large, no maybe this is a Midwestern trait, but by and large people are, are very good. You, sure. you learn a lot about humanity. Sure. It, and by and large, people are like, Hey, listen, sorry, I'd like to do it, but I can't, yeah. can't help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So no one was ever really rude or terse or threw me out. Uh, and I must have called on uh, thousands yeah. of people. And so, you know, it is reaffirming in that way. Yeah. You learn a lot about people in that position. So uh, you know, that it was a very humble beginning. And quite frankly, uh, the guy that was training me really didn't want to train me. He was uh, so busy with his own business uh, that he was kind of like, "Okay, I got to train this you know twenty-three year old punk who doesn't know anything." <laughs> uh, and so, right. essentially, I was a, a lone wolf training myself, and he would help me, but for the most part, it was all on my own. And I didn't have a lot of money. You start out with essentially straight commission, yep, right? It's not a situation yep. where they're giving you a lot of money, so it's it's a very humble way to get going. But you learn a lot about yourself, a lot about the business, a lot about people, uh, and you don't take anything for granted. Yeah, that's right. So you said, Jim, what do do you, you know, what do you love about the business? You know, that it it, it enabled someone like me, uh, you know, a B plus student at the University of Illinois, you know, to prosper. Right. right? I mean, I I was very fortunate to have, you know, the support of the CB franchise, the the brokers that were there, uh, but also being an industrial business marketplace that happened to be growing and I just didn't know it yeah. yet. I mean it was one of those things. But at the time industrial was sort of viewed as the backwater of the three big properties. Yeah, certainly not the you know, sexiest I,
1: part of the commercial real estate space. That's no, right. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah.
0: glamour at all. Quite frankly people would when when they would ask me what I did, I'm talking about like friends and relative, what do you do? I'm an industrial estate broker. What? You know, what does that even mean? Right. Well you know factories, warehouses. Oh, too bad. And a lot of those Perceptions were generally right, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I was going to places like, you know, Gary, Indiana, that's a bad town, but you know, industrial, you know, industrial towns, I mean, heavy industrial towns. Right. Because industrial back then had the connotation of being heavy industry, and quite frankly, that's what it was. It wasn't logistics. I mean, there was some logistic element to it, but it's not It's not remembered. I'm 58, it's not remembered that back in the 80s, you know, we had, a, I mean, particularly in Chicago, a huge manufacturing base. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. Sixty percent of the overall billion square foot Chicago industrial base was manufacturing. Maybe more, sixty-five. Wow. How do I know? Because yeah. I was the market research analyst. Yeah, I, mean, I, knew, <laughs> I knew the facts. You,
1: you knocked on yeah. most of those doors, probably right. I knocked on a lot of yeah. those doors,
0: and I watched a lot of those manufacturers move out. Yeah, you know, so I've had a good view. You know, I'm, I'm on the front line, or at least I was. You know, yeah. back then, of watching what's going on you know, in that portion of our economy, which was very interesting. I didn't foresee that when they signed me up to be an industrial estate broker, I didn't know that I'd be getting this great perspective into what's going on, you know, in and in, in the industrial arena of our economy. That's the manufacturing right. Manufacturing arena, logistics, r; d et cetera.
1: Yeah. And that kind of brings us to center point, right? And tell us a little bit about how long you've been there at the firm. How did the firm itself start? You know, where do you guys play not just geographically, but also in the in terms of you know the type of industrial property.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I was at CB for eleven years and had a great run. I mean, the business was great. I had cut out you know a piece of the market for me, built up a good brand, etc., great relationships, etc. Uh, so I loved my time at CB. But the REIT phenomenon, you know, CenterPoint Properties was an REIT or a REIT, yeah, and. You- Back in the early 90s, when we went through the savings and loan crisis, and I'll get back to that, what happened was REITs began to spawn, essentially, to, to, to raise capital for those that owned properties but couldn't get financing, couldn't get tra- the banks that just shut down. Yeah. So traditional financing was not available. And so they had to tap the public markets, you know, like a SPAC, essentially. So yeah, these REITs yeah, were Like SPACs, for for real estate. And so... Before I knew it, as a broker, I started watching these REITs pop up for office, retail, and then, of course, industrial as well. And I didn't really see it as an opportunity for myself, to be frank with you, because I looked at it as an opportunity to sell things to the REITs, because the REITs were buying everything at the time. And the SNL crisis was very different than the GFC. The SNL crisis, one sector of the economy basically collapsed, uh, and that was the the financial component. And essentially, that's what took down... it, it, when people say, "Well, how, is, how is the GFC? How did it impact industrial?" Yep. The GFC—I'm not saying it didn't impact the industrial market, but it didn't have the impact uh, on 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 the market that the SNL crisis yep. did. Yep. The SNL crisis basically just shut everything down for us, and prices collapsed. All right. even though demand was generally out there, I mean, it wasn't like we were going through the you know, the, the, the this massive depression. So, you know, the GFC you know, was obviously a great recession, a great depression of sorts, uh, if you look at the unemployment. And yet, the industrial market actually was fairly resilient. So, you know, two different you know slowdowns and, and with two different impacts.
1: Sure. Right? Yeah.
0: So, the SNL crisis produced these REITs, and the REITs were growing very quickly. They were raising capital, you know, kind of hand over fist. And essentially, after 11 years of being at CB, Center Point came to me and said, Jim, listen, we understand that we can't offer you the compensation that you're looking for, but you're gonna learn the acquisition business like you've never learned it before. And that appealed to me. I mean, you know, I had been a broker for eleven years. I loved what I was doing, but I also loved the idea of taking on more experience relative to investing, yeah. particularly as it related yeah. to institutional investing. And so I joined Center Point with the idea that I probably would be there for three to five years. <laughs> and I make that comment because back then Real estate was viewed as as like the oil industry. It was really a a boom or bust type industry, meaning that you'd have a three to five, seven year run that was really good and everything would shut down. Yeah, cycles Uh, down, right. It's it's interesting. Over the last 25 years, we haven't had as much. I mean, think about from 2009 till now, uh, and even through COVID, industrial has been you know, unaffected, quite frankly, That's there right. a turbo yeah. chart yeah. for the business. So so Boomer Bus was sort of associated with all sorts of, you know, different real estate ventures, uh, everything commercial, everything residential. So I didn't really expect to be with Centerpoint that long. I assumed that they would be around for three, five, seven, eight, ten years, and then they'd move, you know, be, be bought or sold or whatever. So I joined the firm uh, to really develop an understanding of just the key precepts of acquisitions. And immediately I was thrust into this huge pipeline that the company had. I mean, this, essentially, the company saw every industrial investment in Chicago. And by virtue of just having the phone at my desk, I mean, I was able to see, I mean, <laughs> you know, I had a great vista. I went from being a, a, a very active participant to being, you know, one of the bigger, you know, market participants because CenterPoint saw every investment,
1: sure, every right. broker. Yeah.
0: Because we had capital. And, and the reputation of Centerpoint was it was very favorable. The, 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 the culture was positive, good working relationships with everybody, et cetera. So I went from zero to 110 literally like within a week or two and, and was you know, very quickly understanding what acquisitions meant. And they really hired me to do acquisitions, leasing and development. But most of my focus was on acquisitions because at the time, Center, which was publicly traded, was really trying to, you know, reach really to, to, to survive, need what they call FFO, right. which is funds from operations. FFO is most quickly created by leasing. The second, the second uh, best activity is through acquisitions. And so the board. Public market the CEO really was, was focused. They were like hey Jim, we, we love that you are able to lease, and you, you you know how to do development as well. But we we we'd really appreciate if you went out and bought two or three hundred million dollars a year. <laughs> so for the first, yeah, you know, for the first, you know, I'd say four, five, six years, my focus was really purely only acquisition. I did some leasing, I did some development, and the company grew very quickly. And what happened was after my third year at the company, we started a joint venture with Calpers. And the joint venture didn't really have anybody to run it. And they said, Jim, why don't you run it? Because you're doing so many acquisitions, you're in the middle of all this. We'd love it if you just manage that relationship. And so uh, in 99, 1999, we started the joint venture, and the joint venture ran for seven years okay. and was one of the more profitable joint ventures that CalPERS had ever been in. And so as time progressed, they were saying to me, "Gee, Jim, we'd, we'd, we'd like to put more to work in industrial. What would you think we should do? And I said, you should just buy the company. And point, again, publicly traded. Uh, we were just focused in Chicago. So all of our growth had occurred there. And I could very easily see that we were going to run out of, you know, it, it, Chicago's a great market. But if you're growing as rapidly as we were, we were going to run out of room. Yeah,
1: and and that was going to be my next question. Kind of like, you know, by, by that point, you were already now going national, right?
0: we were headquartered in Chicago and we were focused in Chicago as a public company. Yep. And the joint venture was also focused in Chicago. But I could see that we were running out of room to grow in in, in Chicago. And so I said, "Kelpers, why don't you buy the company? We can use this influx of capital and taking it private to get nationalized, to basically you know, get the company into the, not just Chicago, but at other yeah, diversified right. markets. So that's what happened. They bought the company in 2006 and we had built two massive intermodals while we were public uh, down in juliet illinois which is southwest yep, of chicago yep. we finished the, the, the second one while we were private but essentially we, we, we built them while we were public and they were they were successful but they were more successful in concept than in terms of the overall financial performance what we found out by doing the intermodals was that containerization was not just not just growing global containerization or the movement of goods by containers globally it wasn't just growing at a, at a good clip it was growing at a i mean at, a, at, a, at an accelerating clip meaning that these intermodals they're basically big freight yards what the trains would do is they would leave the ports of LA long beach with the 2 mile long trains whether it be the Burlington northern or the union pacific with containers on them and they'd be bringing them to chicago and the intermodal yards that we had built for the union pacific and the burlington northern essentially were terminals to fit that demand, sure. to suit that demand. Yep. And obviously, this correlated with the ramp-up in Chinese imports, right? And the, and the infrastructure just hadn't been built yet. Yep. I mean, if, if, it, if people talk about infrastructure as being federally driven, meaning that having the public sector drive it, but the reality is it's both. It's the private sector, it's the, fe- uh, the federal government. And what the BN and the UP knew was containerization was growing, and they just didn't have The infrastructure essentially to handle the volume, so they came to developers like ourselves and said, "You know what? We need to build bigger." You know what they were using previously were 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 freight yards, old old boxcar freight yards. That's that's how they were moving the containers, and they said these things are antiquated; they're built in the eighteen hundreds, and we (laughs) need to improve the infrastructure. So we built two massive, three thousand acre intermodals each, and they basically, if you look at them on a map, they essentially rival in, in size, the, the, the L.A. Board, uh, the LA uh, Long Beach uh, port complex. yeah so And that's really the other end of the line. So what happens is the containers land at L.A. Long Beach, they get put on a, a, a train in some cases, and they get railed to either Dallas, Memphis, or Chicago, Chicago being the end of the line, most of it coming to Chicago. And and essentially the containers are going back, and all the DN and the UP do is go back and forth right you know taking these containers they i could be wrong on this but i think it's like eight to ten times a
1: day okay (laughs) wow okay so yeah Yeah. so it's a massive volume
0: interesting interesting yeah so that's really what brought us to the coast if you said jim why are you telling me this is this a is this a very you know interesting story or is there some relevance the relevance is that it's what brought us to los angeles when i showed up in la in 2006 as an acquisition person representing the company, I said, geez, you know, we're, we're at the other end of the line and the, and the sellers and the brokers said, so what? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> But to us, it meant, it meant synergy. Sure. It meant, you know, it meant the customers that were in Chicago that were around the intermodals who coincidentally work mostly LA based companies, uh, you know, where they were at the other end too, they had to be at both Sure, ends. They had to be in LA and if they were in LA. They're also in
1: Chicago. Yeah. Interesting. And so, interesting. Yep.
0: Yeah, and so we saw the traffic was coming in from Los Angeles. We saw that the rail traffic was coming in from Oakland, from Seattle, right? That the West Coast moved containers yeah. by rail yeah. because it's relatively inexpensive and dependable. Yeah, it's not faster than than doing it by truck, but it's very reliable. Yeah, and it can be more more cost effective depending on gas and labor, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we could see that really rapidly that landscape changing. So we got to Los Angeles and began investing, and now we're one of the bigger investors there. went to Oakland near the port, started investing there. Same thing in Seattle, same thing in Houston, same thing in Miami, Savannah, Charleston, New Jersey. And we still have our presence in Chicago. I mean, we still have a a strong presence here, particularly around those intermodals. Uh, And so that's why I always say we're somewhat of a port-focused investor, uh, because for the last 16 years, we've been investing. We've been acquiring and developing assets around port infrastructure in densely populated sites. Right. We've been doing that since 2006. Right. Uh, right. And then e-commerce, no one, I mean, we talked about it, but no one knew of the impact, right? No one knew that it was going to grow the way it's grown. Yeah.
1: And let's let's focus there because I think, you know, since the Great Recession, essentially, you know, the last decade or so, that's when really, I would argue, industrial kind of, you know, took off because e-commerce took off, Right. Mm-hmm. People shopping on their phones and computers and tablets and all that other, you know, just the accessibility of e-tail, if you will, right, was, was was you know, everywhere. So over the last decade, uh, you know, it becomes a very hot part of the commercial real estate industry, correct?
0: Oh, no, no question. You know, there's a transformation going on. Uh, in buying habits, right? I'll, I'll say that. And I, I am not an e-commerce expert. You know, we, we we certainly acquire and build buildings that e-commerce users will will come to. But as you said, Jim, do you, I mean, do you study it? Of course. We right. have consultants that consult us on it. Yes, but I mean, by no means am I an expert. But you know, certainly, what's happened. I think you know, no one would argue with the fact that. E-commerce has changed the way people buy, and so people are no longer visiting stores to buy necessarily. I mean, at least not as much as they used to, uh, and they're doing it, you know, via their computer, or their or their phone, and that's having huge impact. Leasing demand in the retail market, and also in the industrial market, the retail market, leasing demand has gone away. Yeah, right? you've yep. stores like Sears, Kmart, others have have troubles, and and on the industrial side, leasing market has been white hot. And it's been driven mostly by Amazon. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't other big retailers, you know, growing. Of course, they are. But Amazon's being the 800-pound sure. uh, gorilla. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the question is: is that sustainable? You know, there are a lot of implications to this, and none of us. I don't think I, I, I do a lot of reading, and there it isn't. I don't think it's altogether clear. You know, how sustainable is this spike in leasing? This surge in in leasing demand. And you know, COVID obviously had a strong impact for industrial leasing demand because people were at home ordering things, right? Now the question is, did it accelerate that transformation? Is it, I mean, basically, did did five years of growth occur on in one year? Yeah, uh, and it, it's possible. You know, it's, we don't really know. I think this is an ebb and flow type of thing. I think we're in a spike right now, but it's hard to predict that this continues at this pace forever. Obviously, it won't do. It. I mean, what was it? Is it a year is it two years or three years probably something
1: like right. that. right and it does seem that way although I would argue there is certainly something here uh Jim that you know seems like it's not gonna go back you know what I mean I, I don't foresee you know people's habits you know going uh, sort of in reverse and and I am and I am kind of you know curious about there's a recent report that you know came out that you know CBRE or your old employer, as you mentioned, just just actually published saying something like you know the you know future demand for the next fifteen or ten years is something like three hundred fifty million square feet of industrial product and I'm and I'm you know so obviously you know others are also seeing that this is not going to abate you know it it may you know normalize but not reduce right
0: yeah yeah I don't I don't think anybody's predicting that it goes away I think it's the question of kind of the rate of growth yeah. Right now, it's it's growing at an increasing rate, and at some point in time, it's going to continue to grow, right. but at a
1: decreasing rate. That's right. So that's right. You
0: know, wherever that arc is, I don't know if that's 2022, 23, 24. You know, I don't. It's hard for me to predict. I'm not a econometrician. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of yeah. But, you know, our our belief, if you said, you know, Jim, what what is your investment thesis? Is that you know, it, it continues. Uh, we believe that work growth will continue. We believe that there are certain states that will uh, have have some manufacturing return. Yep. And some manufacturing you know, growth because of what's happened with COVID. So, you know, it really plays to having a diverse. If you, if you said, Jim, what are you happy about? I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> We're not right. just in one market. Right. You know, as much as I love Chicago and I'm a native Chicagoan, it more plays to the diversification. And, you know, I've, I've had this discussion with a lot of different people that, you know, will, will industrial estate companies, is it possible because there's such an emphasis on logistics that firms just pick out a certain piece of the supply chain? You know, is it, it mean? Are there just firms that focus on just the last mile? Yeah, or focus More like in a niche, on the fulfillment niche area.
1: Yeah, niche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I, I, and I think that's probably true. Yeah, it's right? possible.
1: It's certainly possible, right? right? Yeah,
0: it's possible, but you can't beat having general investments and in, in a diversified. You know, yeah, we're, we're structured like an ETF almost, right? In, right. in the major markets of the country. And it's not to say we won't have some bumps along the road. Right. It's more to suggest that the volatility of our cash flows, that's way it comes down to. Yeah. It's the cash flow of the consolidated portfolio, right? You take the, the whole portfolio and you say, okay, well, how's the cash flow doing? Net cash flow. After you know, paying for roofs and parking lots and all those kinds of things, as, as your rent hopefully grows, you know, what is the, what is the consolidated cash flow? Of that's, that right. Rent? that's right. How does it look over a 20, 30, 40-year period? Because that's what a pension fund would look at. And so that's what we're built for we're yeah. built for it. You know, it's, it's more of a defensive position. Diversification plays to that.
1: Yep. Yeah. One of the things that over the last sort of 18 months certainly during the COVID outbreak that we've all witnessed is how industrial has just basically kind of breezed through turn of the cycle if you if you will. Uh this has resulted in other companies, you know, raising massive amounts of money to get into the play of things if you will. That usually leads to, you know, things like overpricing of the product, in some cases, you know, even lower cap rates, you know, things like that, right? Are you concerned about that? Are you concerned about how much money is being raised to go into uh, industrial, yeah. how everybody's basically chasing, you know, the same amount of deals? Well, I
0: don't know if it's the same amount of deals. I mean, I, the bases are growing. I mean, that, I mean, if you look at the development pipeline, so the bases of each city, you know, of each region, it, it's growing. So you know, the, the, basically, the, the stadium is getting bigger, right? The opportunity... Uh, set it is growing. Now, certainly, there are. It's very competitive. I'm not suggesting it's not. Sure. But I, I'd be careful with saying it's it's finite. I mean, it's constantly growing and changing. And and I think there are more investors that are looking internationally, looking yep. to Mexico yep. and Canada, uh, going to Europe. So you know, I I, I don't or in South America, I don't tend to really fix it. You know, do I think that you know, people are? If you said in general, is it possible that some investors are? pricing risk incorrectly. Oh yeah, I see that every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I hire people like me to kind of figure that out uh, and, and make those judgments. Not that we bet a thousand, but you know, uh, it, it's hard. It's very hard to be, I mean, as you know, rising, rising tides, lift all yeah. boats, but uh, there will be a bump. And then when there is, you know, it'll, it, it shows and quite frankly, there was to a certain degree with COVID early COVID, you may recall the early days, like in February, March, April of, of 2020. You know there were some firms that were on the run because they, you know, a lot of things were on hold, yep. and yep. and you saw firms selling, and so you kind of tend to figure out who the the, the smarter investors are, that uh, the, the, the well positioned investors are. And our business is one of having capital at, at the at the right time, <laughs> meaning that it's always good to have capital in, in these great you know go go days, but you really want capital. When things dis- dislocate, and you've heard that before, and, and everybody says it, yeah. but it's, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a simple thing to. It's a simple lesson. It's a really hard practice to put in place for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, so we, we, the good news is, I think we've got that discipline. I think we're in a good position that we'll be able, we'll be able to ride ride through the. You know, the waves, as we, as we call them, you know, as, as they come at us. We weren't in that position as a company when we were just Chicago
1: yeah, only. There's yeah. no
0: way. And I'm not sure we would have survived the GFC, quite frankly, to be honest, if we were just Chicago <laughs> only.
1: And what's also happening is that, and this has certainly been, I think, accelerated during the COVID pandemic, but you have people now moving to you know, the Boises and the Austins and the Salt Lake Cities, right? I mean, I think people are kind of really gravitating towards some of the maybe secondary and tertiary markets and I'm also seeing, like you just said in your in your last statement, that you know, the stadium is getting bigger, meaning meaning the, you know, there there are other places now where industrial is also growing. Now, through some of the markets that you've you know mentioned earlier, like you know, the urban core markets of you know, like the Bay Area and Southern California and Pacific North, Northwest, companies like Amazon have been driving most of that demand for space there. Do you see them also likely being the kind of, you know, main driver in some of these other secondary and tertiary markets too?
0: I don't know how they couldn't be. You know, as they grow their, but but honestly again, I'm not an expert on Amazon. I mean, you know, they're very closely guarded in terms of what they do. Sure. But they continue to grow at the pace they're growing at, certainly they're going to go into secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah.
1: Over the next sort of, you know, few years, do you see any distinction between what happens in kind of the urban core markets compared to like, you know, other, other markets? So let's take, you know, the Bay Area as an example. So Oakland versus Central Valley, right? What role will industrial play, you know, closer to Oakland, closer to San Francisco versus something in, you know, Central Valley that's, you know, Couple hours away, uh, but you know, more of a you know connection node for other parts of the you know state or the you know the West Coast, if you will.
0: Yeah, I don't think it changes that much. What we're seeing is densification of the urban delivery system, right? But if you look at the infrastructure that Amazon's building out, it's the densification of, I'd say, the urban delivery system, right? And and they're not the only ones doing it; others are doing it too. So I think that's really, you know, if you look at the Central Valley. You know, it's been growing for years. We've been out in Manteca for since 2007. Uh, so it's not like it. And if you look at the, how it's grown, yeah, the buildings may be bigger or different. You know, they may be you know, designed a little differently. Maybe there's more parking, et cetera. But the reality is that growth was occurring with or without Amazon or with or without e-commerce. I think the e-commerce emphasis is on these massive fulfillment centers, one. And then two, I'll call it the, the densification of urban delivery. You, you, and you see it, every every city is a little bit different. Yep. You know, in, in the cases of New York City, you see multi-story, right? a lot of multi- yep. big, you know, big uh, expensive multi-story projects. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I know Prologis has talked about doing it uh, in San Francisco. They did it up in Seattle. Yep. Yep. Uh, they're talking about doing it in Los Angeles. You know, So yeah, that's the, I think that it's the densification of that. So the, the question becomes, is it needed? And we don't know to what extent it is needed. I think the belief is that it's needed. Now the question is how much? And you know, so it's a little bit of a an open frontier. I think it continues to grow. Again, it's just a question of what rate and you know sort sort of where and when.
1: Yeah. And maybe a decade is too long to, you know, predict, but certainly over the next few years, what what do you think will be some of the markers of the of the industry? Do you also foresee consolidation of you know players like you guys happening where there'll be you know fewer players but uh more bigger and powerful right
0: hard to say yeah it's hard to say you know that's i mean consolidation comes in waves you know and if you look at consolidation theory you know it's a continuous process meaning that the industries kind of go through consolidation and then they they deconsolidate so you know certainly we saw a lot of consolidation between 2010 and 2020 you know does that continue to happen i don't know it depends on you know on borrowing costs, on the economies of scale of being a, a bigger firm, et cetera. You know, I mean, it, bigger isn't always better. Sure. Yeah, we've seen that. So I, I, I think it's a question of how, what do the customers want, and we don't, we don't know enough. That, you know, this e-commerce growth, you know, it's very dynamic, and we're all kind of, you know, we've got, we've all got our forecasts and we have our, our, our tea leaves in terms of where we think it's going. But I think that's what will drive whether there's consolidation or not. I think you know, it's clearly borrowing costs and things like that, you know, operational efficiencies, that certainly goes into it. There's no doubt about that. We we you can obtain op- operational leverage by being bigger and industrial. Again, if you start to lose touch of of your customers, then your buildings are vacant. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, right. there there may be a point of diminishing returns, and and certainly if you look at other industries, that's occurred.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned you're you're you know not a retail expert, so I'm not gonna you know quiz you on your understanding of the of the retail market. But certainly, there's been a convergence between industrial and retail in the last decade. Sort of the retail presence has become more like a, like a showpiece, right? And then the sort of logistics piece behind it ends up being the you know delivery aspect of it, if you if you will. And we've seen that in furniture. We've seen it in some some kind of other areas too anything that you know your consultants or like you said the people that you hire to kind of tell you some of the things that they are observing in this space that you think will be interesting over the next few years in terms of the conversions just in terms of how those two you know areas will continue to work together
0: yeah that too is is kind of open to interpretation because I had exposure to it as a market research analyst at CB right I'm not saying I'm an expert in retail but at least I have I have an appreciation for what I don't know yeah and i'll give you a quick story when best buy first came on you know into, into, into you know, onto the scene which was by I mean, you know, again you probably can correct me but somewhere in the early 90s 91 92 93 you know they were regarded as a category killer that's what the retailers yeah, called them yeah. essentially they were taking a category out of the department store and just solely focusing on that just like home depot did and so when they showed up i saw oh, geez the best buy oh no it wasn't best buy it was uh Bed, Bath, and Beyond. That's what it was. Bed, Bath, and Beyond. And so they opened up a store in Schomburg. So That's got a Bath, and Beyond. Those guys will last like a week. It's the worst, it's the worst, what, what a terrible name, what a bad concept. Next thing you know, I mean, they're huge, as you know, they've, they've been <laughs> right. successful. Yeah. So what, what does an industrial guy know about retail? Nothing. Okay. So that's, that's one point. But the, the second point is, you know, they retail, what I found out about retail is they're very locationally driven. I mean, literally like one building across the street from another can trade at very different price points. And I'm talking like 50%. And they can look the same. So if you're on the west side of the street, that'll trade differently than the east side. And and one could be double. Yeah. Even though it's the same design, same color, right? It's, it's all a function where the customers want to be. And so what I've noticed on the industrial side is, is that the users have become much more locationally sensitive. They used to be cost sensitive. Now they're locationally sensitive. Whether it's e-commerce, whether it's port, whether it's labor, they're just the the logistics component of, of of the equation is important, certainly. But there are other considerations as well. All I'm saying is the location is much more. It, it, back in the uh, late 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was always cost driven. It was always where can I get Interesting. a lower rent? Yeah. And today it is locationally driven for a whole bunch of different reasons. It's not just logistics. We shouldn't I think we shouldn't delude ourselves. That's not the only reason. It's 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 it's, it's political forces. I mean why is Texas you know growing quickly? Because people believe that it's a tax you know friendly state. Okay. It's a business friendly yeah, climate. Yeah. So it's not just for logistics. There there are other reasons that are other drivers that are queuing this up. But I think it's very lo- say it's very locationally driven. And I think that's the convergence.
1: Interesting. The convergence
0: is that hey, you know, that the valuation of one property can be very different than the valuation of another property, even if it's just down the street. And they might look the
1: same. Interesting. Interesting.
0: In the industrial, realm.
1: yeah. So, so as you see, you know, you mentioned, you know, Manteca in the central valley of you know, California. So, as you see an Amazon building a two million square foot uh industrial property there, it likely it will attract others as well, right? Because they feel like they have to be you know near there, is what, is what you're saying. It
0: could, it could. I mean, you know, I mean, but they picked it for a reason. Let's assume that they have you know. You know, what, what goes into their calculus is fairly well thought out right. It wasn't probably right. just cost driven on oh yeah you know, we can get the land cheaper and the rent is cheaper. Yep. there are other things that are going into that sure. decision sure that, sure that's very different than the decision making uh, matrix of the 90 80s 90s and early 2000s right. for industrial customers right. industrial tenants.
1: Jim is my final question here. Uh, you have been in the industry now for you know 35 plus years you've seen it when it was, you know, the backwater of the commercial real estate industry to now being, you yeah. know, a golden child of the commercial real estate industry. During that time, you know, what sort of keeps surprising you? You know, what still kind of, you know, gets you out of bed and, uh, you know, gets you excited about uh, industrial real estate? Oh,
0: that's a really good question. Yeah, you know, I think it's because it's always changing, you know, that, that not just because of e-commerce. I mean, for if you said, you know, whether prior to e-commerce was it evolving? Absolutely, there's always an evolution going on. They may be many evolutions, right? That, that are almost imperceptible. It's a very dynamic. What what makes it addictive for me is it's always a different picture. It's always a different movie, right? When I wake up, and, I'm, and I because I have a I'm privileged to have a great vista into this market, you know, based on what I do. And it's always a different movie, and Then there's always a different outcome. And so that's really, and it's not always what you think it's going to be, right? It's, it's not the, yeah. it's not the, the movie ending that you predicted. So I would say uh, the addictive nature for me is uh, to think what's what's next, what how is it going to evolve? And I, what I always say is Walmart. I mean they were the, the they were the kings, and they still are. But we you know, people don't talk about Walmart as much as they probably should. Uh, they are logistics, you know, geniuses and leaders, but it's funny. I mean, when in 2005, when we were building a big campus for them in Chicago, like almost a four million square foot campus uh, for them in Chicago, nobody was talking about Amazon. And so the question I leave you with, Vlad, is you know who's the next Amazon? Yeah. Right. So you know we weren't even talking about Amazon in 2005. That wasn't that long ago. That was just 15 yeah, years ago, yeah. 16 years ago. Okay. So in 15, 16 years, who are we talking about? Who is the hot? You know, because you know it'll be somebody else it just it works that
1: way yeah well jim it was a pleasure speaking with you i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and uh yeah best of luck uh, for the rest of the year and look forward to connecting with you soon
0: thank you vlad talk to you soon
1: thank you for listening to the real perspectives podcast stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.